Hey, I'm Jesse. Let's have a devotion. We're going to zoom in at the setting for this incredible confessional prayer. There have been prayers that are similar in the book of Daniel. There's a prayer that's similar in the book of Nehemiah. There's a reaction to this kind of corporate sinfulness that's similar that we saw in the book of Isaiah. But let's look at the moments immediately preceding Ezra's confessional prayer. This is Ezra 9.5. At the evening offering, I got up from my time of humiliation with my tunic and robe torn. Then I fell on my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God. So this time of humiliation, this is the only time that this Hebrew word appears in Scripture, right here. And it's found in other Hebrew texts from the post-exilic era that are not biblical, but it was first coined here, and it appears only here. Something unique about this prayer that we're going to study in the coming devotions, but I wanted to start off with just the setting and show you something else as we, as we prepare to move forward. Nehemiah 1. Remember, Ezra and Nehemiah were one book originally. Here's Nehemiah 1, beginning in verse 4. When I heard these words, I sat down and wept. I mourned for a number of days, fasting and praying before the God of the heavens. So he's weeping uh, over this news, and the, the words that he heard were about the disarray of the, the city of Jerusalem. I said, Lord, the God of the heavens, the great and awe-inspiring God, who keeps his gracious covenant with those who love him and keep his commands. Let your eyes be open and your ears be attentive to your servant's prayer that I now pray to you day and night for your servants, the Israelites. I confess the sins we have committed against you. Okay, look at this word, we. Right here, if you're watching this on video, both I and my father's family have sinned. We have acted corruptly toward you and have not kept the commands, statutes, and ordinances you gave your servant Moses. Please remember what you commanded your servant Moses. If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and carefully observe my commands, even though your exiles were banished to the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to a place where I chose to have my name dwell. So you got you to gotta give it to Nehemiah for first reminding God of what he said he would do in disciplining his people. And then this is what makes this prayer distinctive from the prayer we're about to hear from, from Ezra, and that there is a petition in this prayer. Here's, here's, uh, here's verse 11 of Nehemiah's prayer. Please, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to that of your servants who delight to revere your name. Give your servant success today and grant him compassion in the presence of this man. At the, at the time, I was the king's cupbearer. And so if you want to know how, how things turned out for Nehemiah, you got to go back and study the Revival Project. That's our original series that we did uh, uh, almost two years ago, going verse by verse through Nehemiah. And it's what gave a launch to uh, our building campaign at the Redemption Church. Now, he asks God for success. He asks God for compassion. He asks God that the request he's about to make of the Persian king would be, would be answered. And he reminds God not only of his promised discipline, but of his promised restoration to his people. Ezra's prayer is going to be distinctive from this. 
Look at how he begins this prayer. He begins it in the time of humiliation with his tunic and robe torn. This was costly. Uh, you would wear a tunic and it would kind of be like your one tunic. Um, who was it who recently asked me about my wardrobe? Because it's not very big. And so you guys have seen this jacket a lot. <laughs> you know, like people have, have my, my whole wardrobe memorized because there's not a lot to it. But I had a whole lot more clothes than, than Ezra did. And so to have torn his tunic was to have torn the one tunic he had. And to, to tear his robe is to tear the one robe that he has. So he's doing this in a sign of deep mourning. And he's not grieving the death of someone. He's not even grieving over his own sin. And it's not as though uh, Ezra has just been busted. It's not like Ezra sinned and now he's been called on the carpet and the, the, the jig is up and now everybody sees him for what he is and he feels deep shame over his personal sin. He's not even personally guilty of the sin. He's not married a woman from another faith system and then started worshiping her false gods. Rather, this, this has happened. It's been prevalent among the people. It's been prevalent among the spiritual leader, leaders. In fact, the, the, the Levites, the priests, they've led the way in this practice of forsaking Yahweh, marrying women from faith systems that were forbidden, and then taking on those idolatrous practices. So he's grieving corporately. He has torn his robe and his tunic, and he feels humiliation, even though he has not sinned. Let's take a moment, because this is not something that we see in our modern church system, and, and, and particularly because of the denominations that exist. Okay, let's talk very briefly about denominations. They're a recent construct. They're not always a bad thing. They do disconnect us, though. No, it's not fair to say that denominations are you know, evidences of different Christians uh, disagreeing on finer points and starting their own churches. No. And, uh, and in fact, many of the denominations that exist simply remain from the reformers who came from the Catholic Church. They started churches in different areas. You know, one ex exception might be the Baptist faith, which comes from the Anabaptists. A guy named John Smythe, you know, studying scripture, realized like, hey, there's not a single word in here about sprinkling water on infants. Okay, sorry if you're a paedo-baptist and if I just made you mad. We love you, Presbyterian brothers in, uh, in Christ. But um, that's just what John Smythe realized. Like every time someone's baptized in scripture, it's post-conversion. And it's usually a large body of water. And the actual word that's used here is, is sozo or baptizo. And it means to immerse. And so he's like, I think that we need to be baptized again. That's what the word Anabaptist means. And so as you can imagine, they were called the Anabaptists for a long time. And then uh, after a generation, they realized, okay, we haven't sprinkled our infant children. They've grown up. They've professed faith in Christ. They've confessed that Jesus is Lord. They believe in their hearts and the resurrection. So now we baptize our kids. But we who have been baptized again, meaning we were sprinkled as infants and now we've been immersed uh, as adults, our kids are not Anabaptists. They're just Baptists. That's where the Baptist denominations came from. Okay, that's where it came from. It didn't, it, it didn't come from fights. <laughs> it, didn't, it just came from 
the practice of baptism and they realized like, hang on a second, wait, we've been doing baptism wrong. Let's be baptized again. And then they start baptizing their children. And that's, you know, fast forward the clock centuries. And now here we are, but we still bear the same names on some of our churches. Uh, even within the Baptists, there are numerous conventions. The largest in the world is the Southern Baptist Convention. There's also like a Northern Baptist Convention. Just imagine what issues separated them in uh, the early 1800s. They actually thought about changing their name, but they realized, no, this is, this is where our name came from. They just kind of stuck with the name Southern Baptist, even though there are Southern Baptist churches in Canada, and they're not Southern, and there's not a single Southern Baptist alive who's pro-slavery. They just kept the name. Um, Presbyterians, you know, even more recently have had a, had a split and actually was over biblical orthodoxy. Um, and then this part that split off as the fastest shrinking denomination in history. The United Methodist Church, ironic though its name is United, has gone through a schism as well. The part of the United Methodist Church that stayed true to scripture has experienced revival recently at one of their seminaries, Asbury. That's really beautiful. But the stories behind these are the reformers who actually were kicked out of uh, the Catholic Church. And so it's not quite fair of the Catholic Church to deride Protestants for having multiple denominations when uh, the denominations were born from people that they have statues of uh, being killed. <laughs> like literally, there's a, there's a cathedral, a, a former colleague of mine, Dr. Ed Stetzer, I call him a colleague, he was way out of my league. Um, it, it took a photo in front of Martin Luther being killed uh, and, you know, a, a statue of it at a, at a cathedral. Like that's where the denominations came from. We actually believe the same things, but one downside to the denominational structure is that we no longer feel the corporate weight of societal sin. We might feel it like as the Redemption Church, we are fully independent. We are non-denominational. Um, but you know, when it comes to sin in the church corporately, uh, the burden that we should feel is not just our own. Uh, it's, God, would you forgive, you know, churches for where we failed you? And, you know, this, this was something that was deeply felt by Ezra because they were, there were no denominations. They're, they're, it's, it's not like in the U.S. when you are ordained into a given denomination and maybe you go to some denominational things and maybe there's a national level convention and you attend it and, and they deal with, you know, corporate sin. But even then you're only dealing with or, or, or beholding uh, just a fraction of what's actually happened. And so these denominations keep us from really communicating corporately across denominational lines. There were no denominational lines. What Ezra felt was the full weight of all the people of God on the earth at the time who had been scattered now in exile and they had forsaken God. They had begun worshiping false gods because they had done exactly what God told them not to do. And so he felt humiliation on a corporate level. I think that this is an important part of the beginnings of revival. Speaking of the Asbury revival, and I'm, I'm trusting the people that I know personally who went there to scope it out to see it, um, that it is, it is an act of revival. It really truly was of the Holy Spirit. And one, one of the ways that I know that is that uh, the reports all come back that it was marked by personal holiness, personal conviction over personal sin. And I can tell you right now that only the Holy Spirit would do that. These Christians were gathering together and they were confessing sin and they were worshiping through the night and into the coming days. And this was beginning in the people of God, in the house of God. That's where it starts.
That's where it begins. Now, this time of humiliation, if you were to take that and apply that directly, and if you were to tear your robe, tear your tunic, you know, rip up your whole wardrobe and all the clothes that you own, put your, even go farther than Ezra and put, put on sackcloth and put ashes on your face, and, and you were to deeply grieve and mourn and then say, you know what, this isn't sad enough. I need to feel even more sad. Then the devil could use this as a foothold to quickly cause you to cross the threshold from conviction to shame, which we talked about in yesterday's devotion. But there is an appropriate degree of humiliation to be felt on a corporate level for the people of God, particularly in Ezra's part as one of the leaders of the people of God. Do not fall for the lie from the devil that sin's not that big of a deal. Don't fall for the lie from false teaching that God no longer considers certain things sinful anymore when his word clearly describes them as sinful. Feel the full weight of just how sinful it was and then behold the full glory of the atonement to absolve sinners of every last sin. What Ezra did not have was the cross yet. He believed that the Messiah was coming one day, but he didn't even know the name of Jesus. So we ought to feel the appropriate degree of our own sinfulness to to take a moment and allow ourselves to see the scope of our own sin. But we know that there's something after verse 5. We know that this is only chapter 9 of the book of Ezra, and there's more to this story. There's, there's more to come. All right? Uh, and in fact, what would come in chapter 10 uh, is even going to be an object of some debate the drastic measures that they would take to repent from this, you know, are, uh, are, they seem anticlimactic and, and it's shocking. But what I appreciate is the heart behind it because I know where it started. It started in this feeling the weight of one's sin, but don't stay there. Okay. You don't need to become a monk and you don't need to wear one of those weird belts around your thigh that stabs into your flesh so that you just feel bad about what a horrible sinner you are all the time. The threshold exists where you forsake the cross and where you forget the cross or discount the cross or act like Jesus hasn't come yet. The moment that your time of humiliation is done is when you've confessed everything there is to confess and you pray this corporately on behalf of other people in the Redemption Church and across Christianity in the Pacific Northwest to pray that God would begin in the churches, not just the redemption church, but church-wide, that we'd feel the weight of our sin. I know what it's like to, to feel that temptation to downplay your own sin. I've done it, and it didn't work out. God humbled me the hard way for that. So take it from me, if not from Ezra, if not from your own personal experience or other anecdotes you've heard of this. Like, Take a moment to truly feel the full weight of your sin. And when you have fully confessed, humbling yourself before God in the right time, he will lift you up. All right? So experience for a moment the time of humiliation over sin, but do not linger there because 
we have a lot of people to reach.